started off, we started recording it actually before the pandemic started. Um, and it didn't, the pandemic and the lockdowns didn't actually slow it down because we'd recorded a lot of the the basic tracks by the time the lockdowns happened. And, and here, I don't know if it was the same in America, but here you, there were times when you weren't allowed to leave your house. You know, you, you had to, you had to stay in your house for weeks on end. And then, but that actually helped make this record because it, it, it meant that there was time to play with the arrangements and, and work on the, the other ideas um, aside from the kind of melody and lyrics, the, the counter melodies and the voicing of the different arrangements and the beats and so on. So it, it was really strange because it didn't feel like it, it would, was, would have, it was what I would have been doing anyway, you know, so it didn't feel like anything was different. And then when I did sometimes go into like zone one central London, there was nobody there at all. There was no one on any of the tubes or the trains. All the shops were shut. And it actually felt good. <laughs> it felt better. <laughs> so um, it was a strange pandemic for me. I think I'm still very much, the dust is still settling. You know, I, I'm, I, I feel like I've kind of forgotten a lot of what happened. I feel like, was there a pandemic? Was there really a lockdown? I can't remember it very well. This thing that I've noticed with a lot of people, and I think really specifically uh, musicians to a certain extent, I mean, obviously musicians were, a lot of musicians were affected in a very, very profound and, and unfortunate way with all, all of the touring out of the way. But uh, musicians, um, I interview a lot of writers, I interview a lot of cartoonists, you know, people who have to be to a certain extent solitary in terms of actually, you know, getting some work done that when I would ask them how that period of time went, they would always with very hushed tones would tell me that actually like it was, it was pretty great because not, you know, people don't want to say that out loud because obviously it was a miserable time for a lot of people, but all of a sudden, you know, after years of, of touring, you've all of a sudden got just all this free time. Yeah. And, and things begin to go absolutely back to basics, you know, um, if you can't go outside uh, most of the time, then the times you do, you just appreciate it so much more. You have so much more of a feel for what's actually there and you look so much more closely. So yeah, it was a, it was a ghastly time for um, a lot of people, you know, but within that ghastliness, there were little pockets of, of things that were actually quite positive. I think I've thought during the pandemic, a lot about that, that classic twilight zone, episode where the guy wishes that he had more time to read books um the population gets wiped out and then he like steps on his glasses you know very very classic <laughs> ironic twilight zone ending but you know it for me personally when i have to do things that 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 are freelance um i need a deadline to get it done if if there isn't some sort of external force then i'm just never going to finish something yeah, and the act of never finishing is quite an interesting one, though. I mean, because why? Why do you never finish? What? What is it? What is it you're doing that's stopping you from finishing? Like a lot of people, I got to a certain point with my mental health during the pandemic that that's that's forced me to kind of to look inward and to to examine certain things about myself. And that procrastination isn't the right word because I'm like 
I work a lot. I work too much, but um, a lot of those sorts of issues for me personally are, are tied very closely to anxiety. I'm very prone to catastrophize things to, to sort of, you know, to, to game out the worst case scenario. And that, that can make uh, something, something like work without a deadline is, is to me is basically an abstraction. And it just, it becomes more and more overwhelming the more and more that I think about it. And therefore, you know, I find other smaller ways to occupy my time. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, I'm different because I, I don't like to a fault really. I wish I did procrastinate more, but I don't procrastinate. And I do decide really quickly what I want to do. Um, and with that working without a deadline is actually really interesting in a way, because it's a kind of open-ended moving on and on and on and on and never really finishing or do you finish like I feel like I finished and then said okay but now there's no one who can release it for a while what shall I do now you know it was it's a really interesting time because all the normal constraints were lifted and you sort of started to see (laughs) what was underneath the rock you pulled up about yourself you know so I think it's it's quite interesting to hear someone else's experience around work and um, open-endedness and and the lack of deadlines at that time. You know, I write for a living. Um, I, I do this too, but my main thing is writing. And I've been writing professionally for, I, I guess, like 20 years at this point. And I still, I read a lot of people, a lot of writers complain about writing. A lot of them, when I hear people talk about doing this for a living, it, it just sounds like most people are just absolutely miserable and they hate it. And that's something that I've never understood because I do I do still get in the zone and I do still get that jolt and I get that I connect with that excitement that started me down this road in the first place and for whatever reason that's something to me that that switch flicks on when when, when I have a deadline you know when I've got to get something out the out the door because I'm not somebody once I'm finished with something, I never want to see it again. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, I think for me, if I'm commissioned to do something, I'll do it really fast. If someone says, you know, like, can you do a song for this or, or a piece of music for the soundtrack to that, I'll do it straight away. But if I'm working on my own thing, like, which is generally speaking a, a long player, um, you feel like you're not doing anything, but maybe you're just walking along the kind of circumference of a circle that's so big, it feels flat. Um, you know, it, it, it's something that's totally unfocused and you, you can only, it will only come into focus when it wants to come into focus. Whereas if someone says, can you do this for me? And it has to be done in the next two weeks, that's something small and clear. And there's a real difference between those two types of work, creative work, I think. It's a good point. And I, much like deadlines, a lot of people work better with constraints. And, you know, a commission project, for example, is a really good example of somebody pointing you in a specific direction, you know, whether it's like, I don't know, if you're scoring a film, or even if somebody's telling you, you know, I want this genre of music, and I, I want it to feel this way, then 
you can sit there and and bang things out. But when you're at the beginning of that process of working on a set of songs for yourself, like theoretically, they could take any shape imaginable. Like, you, you know, usually they, you know, they don't. I mean, you know, it's not you're not making. Uh, you know, it's it's not like an it's not a, a free jazz album necessarily, and it's not a noise rock album. But like, all, but all of those possible elements are there when you first sit down. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like the I've heard bands talk about when they made a record and they didn't like it. You know, they thought the spirit wasn't there. They were they 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 didn't want the world to hear it. And my bloody Valentine had that I think the the third record that they made they shelved because they just couldn't get the sounds right and the, the spirit of the thing was dead to them you know it wasn't wasn't what they wanted it to be and then 25 or whatever 20 years later they had a listen and they thought oh, that's all right actually it's pretty good should we put it out <laughs> and I find that really interesting too because I completely uh you know I, I really identify with that saying, listening to when you're making something, you're like, there's, there's, there's some animating feature of really good work that is not in this work. And I can't put my name to it and I don't want anyone to hear it. And then you walk away and in a different context, it's never been 20 years later, but maybe six months, you think, what was I thinking back then? This is just as good as anything else I've done. And I wonder what you've lost in the meantime, you know, w- when you feel that way. What, what's, what's changed that, that suddenly makes the, the work interesting to you, Where, whereas before you would have happily thrown it in the bin? I don't know. It seems to happen with some bands anyway, and it certainly happened to me. I find that if I'm writing something and I, and I get stuck, even just standing up and, you know, walking around the block and coming back to it, I'll realize that it's not as bad as I thought it was. And, and I think... Perhaps what a lot of this comes down to is it feels bad in the moment, but with a little bit of clarity and focus, you realize that it's not a question of being bad, but it's a question of you having a very specific idea of the product that you want and that you weren't able to hit that. And because you weren't able to capture that exactly that abstraction that you had in your head, that it's a bad product. Or maybe you find that the rest of your work is as bad as you thought this was initially. And therefore, you can accept it on the same terms as the rest of your work. (laughs) I feel like you're joking to a certain extent, but I don't know, maybe there's truth in that. I think there's a grain of truth in it. I mean, I'm joking. I'm obviously, you know, being silly. But I think like the first song on the new the new clientele record called Fables of the Silver Link. Um, it was an ambitious song and we recorded the basic tracks very quickly in a day and we took it away. And I remember thinking at the end, this, that didn't work. You know, that, that, that was, it was, an, it's, it failed on its own terms. It was an embarrassment and um, I won't do anything like that again. I obviously can't do it. The, the idea I had in my head, I've come nowhere near to. And then it was, I forgot I'd even made it. And then, I don't know, like two or three months later, I said, oh, I'll have a listen to that to see what not to do, perhaps. But, um, and then I thought, well, it still seems kind of clunky, but 
the singing sounds really emotional and true on it. And, and so maybe we can work it up back around that again, take that as the center part of it and change it up a bit. Um, and so I put more time into it and um, I was happy with it in the end. Uh, you know, like I thought, no, it is how I wanted it to be. But I don't know whether it's because I forgot how I initially wanted it to be and it took on a life of its own or, um, or whether, you know, I just got used to it in some way and kind of lived with it and thought, oh, it's okay, you know, it doesn't offend me anymore. But that was definitely another example in terms of a song where I wasn't really sure about it. And then what did I do? I put it as the first song on the record. Are you able to, you know, with that kind of remove, are you able to put yourself in that initial headspace and recognize what you were trying to get out of initially? It's funny because only with, I think only with the songs that succeed the most, you know, they remind you of that initial inspiration. And they're always the ones that are the easiest to do as well. Like um, the one, the, the song that, the clientele song that most people listen to at least, I don't know if it's their favorite song, but there's Reflections After Jane. And that, that was written, you know, almost literally in the time it takes to, to listen to the song. It was written so quickly, everything was finished. And then it was recorded so quickly as well. Um, but and then we just left it and that was god knows how long ago it was 1996 97 or something and people are still listening to it now and and I still remember the inspiration for that song like I've played it a lot since I don't listen to the recording of it anymore but I like the song and other songs that I've tried to be more ambitious with and maybe thought about a bit more and thought through and planned I've come nowhere close to that level of um, power, you know, and it's been an education to me because I found increasingly as I got older, I realized that what I'd been doing at the start was the right thing to do. And it was to record as quickly as possible and to write as quickly as possible and then forget, forget it, move on, you know, and maybe then in another six months to a year's time, you might remember the song and then have another idea for something that could make it better. And then you go back and you add that in. And that's really, the, the, that's the best way to write for me. That's the best way to record as well is if you can, if you have the luxury of being able to go in and out of a recording studio, just to go in the minute something is written. And if it's like irregular in meter or if it, doesn't quite the, the verses aren't quite symmetrical or you make a little mistake you know, the singing or the guitar just keep it in you know because it's it that has a freshness to it that more planned out pieces of work don't have um and that's annoyingly for me that's what i started with that's how I worked to begin with. And I've realized I was right to begin with. So all the time I was trying to improve the way I worked on things, I was actually making them worse, you know? I think about this a lot, especially with regards to music. You know, there's the uh, the most classic example of this in rock and roll is the, you know, Keith Richards wakes up in the middle of the night and he, and he hums a, a guitar riff in, into the tape recorder by his bed. And like that, you know, it's a riff for satisfaction, right? There's, there are all these stories about all of these songs that were written, you know, instantaneously a lot, you know, and very famously, a lot of, you know, classic songs were written in 20 minutes. And I wonder 
ultimately, if there is an extent to which really celebrating that can be kind of self-defeating in that, does that make you more likely to abandon an idea or something that could be successful because it's not working right away? Well, it's self-defeating if you accept that as the gospel truth and the only way to do things to begin with. I mean, you shouldn't do that, but... but if you but if you find yourself that that's the right way to do things and that has the best results then i think it's a valid point to make i i I didn't know keith richards woke up and hummed the riff of satisfaction into his dictaphone or whatever i did know that paul mccartney wrote yesterday in a dream he woke up and he had the song from a dream and i also knew actually that the person who invented a sewing machine the sewing machine invented it in a dream too so maybe there's a book somewhere about things that were invented in dreams that someone could write it could be quite interesting i mean the flip side of that though is there is there a case where you really really labored over a song and it was ended up being better for it well they probably they probably are i mean i'm not saying that working on working on something doesn't make it better i'm just saying that the very best like the top tier of the very best songs in my experience arrive uh almost fully formed you know um but yeah there will be many examples of things where i worked on them to try and bring them up to an acceptable level and they worked quite well in the end but i suppose with 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 pop music, with, with rock music, a lot of it's about the rhythmic feel. And if you don't have a rhythmic, a good rhythmic feel in the song to begin with, you're going to struggle. You're going to probably have to start all over again. And that's perhaps the key to, to what I'm, I'm saying, because Reflections After Jane, well, I mean, thanks to Daniel Evans, the drummer, has got a really lovely rhythmic feel to it. You know, it's got a very kind of laid back, uh, easy, kind of feel and and that might be where everything else was built was built onto sorry i'm going to ask you something very silly and abstract on the face of it but you had talked about looking at a song listening to a song early on and feeling like it didn't it didn't work not necessarily with that song specifically but what does it mean for you for a song to work or to not work (laughs) that's not uh, well it's not a silly and abstract question to me but you run the risk of me giving you a silly and abstract answer. And, and that, and that is for me, like, um, well, it's hard to say, it's hard to really verbalize it without sounding pretentious. I think. Let's go. I'm ready for it. I think pretentiousness is good. Not enough people are pretentious, you know? So, um, songs to me, like when I write a song, it comes from an image, you know, It, it doesn't, it's not like pure music. It comes always to me, an image, but not like a, not like a kind of a watercolor image, but a very hard, like a stained glass type image with, with, with light and color and depth in it. And I'll write the music around that image. And then the music and the image together will suggest the lyrics. And if I can hear at the end of the production line, been in someone's studio, recorded it, tried to sing in tune, tuned up the guitars all the rest of it, if that image is still really, really clearly and simply there, that for me is the song that's a success. Now that's a, a completely solipsistic, um, hermetic uh, uh, answer to your question because it only could really be understood by me, but it is also a truthful one. It's a fascinating for, 
I keep using the word abstract, but it, but it is it is abstract, and it is that abstraction that we were talking about earlier of basing a song around a feeling, and that one is difficult because I don't know maybe when you're in the studio, you know, certainly with your bandmate, like certainly with like you and James who have been working together for forever. Do you relay that picture? to the other person does is is that something that you can explain to them in words and are they able to use that to help build the song on their side absolutely not (laughs) never never (laughs) no we don't talk i was saying this in another interview actually it's funny because we've uh, the three of us actually mark james and i have shared stages for goodness knows how many years and I can often tell what they're going to do next when we play live and not because they're predictable but because I can kind of sense what they're about to do and I think they can with me too but we never ever ever talk about the meaning of the songs but I think for the 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 band to work and for all three members to be excited about the music that's being made we must have some kind of unspoken shared understanding of that image or that feeling. There must be a communication somewhere, but it's it's absolutely never verbalized. Never. I think we you know, we're all like British people of a certain age. We'd die of embarrassment if we started talking about that kind of thing, you know. But I do get a sense of like synesthesia almost the way you're describing it, because you're you're describing this process of creating something that to you is very visual through an an entirely auditory medium. Yeah, I think if I came on, you know, this this podcast and said, "Oh, I'm synesthetic," that's just a way of excluding people. You know, it's a way of saying I have this higher or stranger understanding of aesthetics or, or a weird understanding of aesthetics. And I don't think I do. I think that I think you know, it doesn't have to be an image that it, that it evokes in people's minds it could be a feeling or it could be halfway between a feeling and an image like how the light turns at certain times of year like i'd like our songs to be the kind of thing that whoever listened to it whether they had synesthesia or not they could feel like they were walking into a picture you know that's 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 again that to me is is a criteria for a success of a song i think um and it doesn't always come across, I don't think. There's certain songs of the clientels that are not celebrated really uh, in the same numbers that others are. But I think are much more, they paint a much clearer picture and they have much more depth to them. But it's it's a personal view, you know, it doesn't seem to be a shared view. So, it, well, I do, you know, like, who was it? Was it, was it Rambo who talked about the colours of the vowels? I can't remember what colors they were. He, I know you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to me, they're different keys have different colors. So, you know, B, B major, only the major keys, strange enough, but B major is a kind of a, a twilight blue, whereas um, F sharp major is like a, a kind of a gold. Uh, and 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 but when you do start to explain these things you run the risk of sounding very silly and you lose people you know it makes it sound like you're you have access to some you think you have access to some kind of higher aesthetic uh 
truth and it's not true at all it's just a it's just a way that the beautiful thing about music is it affects everyone differently but it binds people together as well what i would say is i don't think you explaining your process and you explaining the way that you interact with music is exclusionary and and i think synesthesia I mean, you know, we're, we're throwing around the word synesthesia, like synesthesia is an actual condition and, you know, who knows, um, uh, you know, and, and maybe we're being a little glib with that, that term specifically, but, but now that we're talking about painters, I, I think it was, I was reading about something recently, I think it was Renoir and the theory is that Renoir was, was nearsighted and that's why he painted the way he did. And I think that that is obviously, I, I think there's a, a degree to which that's speculation. But but I think that it's useful for me as somebody looking at his paintings and attempting to decipher some meaning or, you know, at very least seeing, understanding his process, it, it's useful for me to, to understand those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and I can, and I, and I agree. I mean, some pieces of art will hit you very, very hard without you having to think about it at all. And, which is great, you know. It's the, it, I guess it's the equivalent of the writing the rip of satisfaction halfway through the night. You know, it's it's immediate. And others you can perhaps unlock by by thinking more about optics or context and learning more. You know, not I, I don't like the word studying because again that feels exclusive to me. It feels like it's saying, oh, you don't know what I know because I went and I studied history of art, but. Why do you need to study history of art to understand art? You don't at all. Um, but, but you can learn, you know, and, and you can get closer to what things might mean. And that can unlock a lot of really interesting things too. So, you know, uh, with Renoir, I don't, I don't, is it him? I thought it was a different one who was a different impressionist who was nearsighted, or maybe they all were. I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear. <laughs> Let's use Reflections After Jane as as sort of kind of the error example for you. A song like that, are, are, are there songs that just feel inevitable? I'll tell you how that got written, actually. I've just remembered. It's such a long time ago that I was reading this, this writer called Joe Busway, right, who is a, a surrealist, a Belgian surrealist writer. I just bought this book of surrealist literature from a bookshop and I didn't know what it was all about and a lot of it was a bit crazy for me but this writer I really loved because he seemed to be writing a kind of a a tale of a narrative around twilights and yearning and, and love and things but it was all jumbled up. The images were all jumbled up. It didn't make sense. And, and, but it did make sense because it was jumbled up to me. And I found, and I read a little bit about his life and he was actually, uh, he fought in the first world war and he was, he was paralyzed by a bullet um, in the trenches. And he spent the rest of his life bedridden and he chose to use the rest of his life in his bed, writing very strange hallucinatory kind of prose poems, stories. Um, and I thought, what, a, what an interesting, what a, what a slightly disturbing, actually, but quite interesting life the guy had. And I, and I tried to write a story like him. 
I, it was called Reflections After Jane. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of reflections in his work. He's a surrealist. Of course there are, you know. Um, and, and this was a terrible thing that I wrote. It was embarrassing. You know, I was about, I was about 19. You know, it was kind of like adolescent sixth form poetry type stuff. And then what happened was I put that down and suddenly there was a song that took a lot of elements from the kind of story that I wrote and um, but condensed them and got rid of the kind of, I don't know, the pretension and the overwriting and just condensed the images and put, put them within a different context from a Belgian guy in the 1920s writing to the surrealist poets and writing about surrealism and, and brought it into a guitar band from the 90s. And I thought, that what, that just happened. What, what just happened? I had no control over that process, but it kind of happened almost despite me. And that's how that was that's how that was written. When you say you had no control over that process, what parts are you talking about specifically? All of it. I had no choice but to sit down and use my time that I could have used for anything to write and to play a guitar. Uh, and, and I think that the first three Tell albums were all like that. There was no choice. It was something that, that had to be done, you know? that I was so certain that it was the right thing to do and it was a good use of my time that it would have never occurred to me to doubt myself. And, and it was only later that I learned to doubt myself a bit more. But for those first three records, I had just un, unbreakable confidence because I knew that it was almost like it was coming from, it was coming from somewhere else. I knew that I had to do it and I can't explain it any more clearly than that. Although I'm willing to carry on trying, but I can't at the moment. <laughs> it's just that feeling of absolute certainty that it had to be done. It's interesting that you're able to nail it down to those three albums specifically. Um, what what happened to you between the third and fourth record? Was it just kind of was it was it just reality kicking your ass to a certain extent? You know what? I wouldn't like to admit it, but it probably was. I mean, it, it felt to me like. A, a kind of a fever broke. I think but it was also reality came in because around that time we were able to, you know, we, we supported ourselves with music, which is what I'd always wanted to do. And we had, you know, an opportunity to, we had a lot of opportunities to do things that were probably, we shouldn't have done that we didn't need to do, like go and record in Nashville, Tennessee, play festivals everywhere and fly around the world. And I think it spoiled it in a way. It made it, it turned us into just any, any old band. And, and I've always felt before that we were quite a unique band, you know, that, that we were a special band in some way. And there were always a few people around us who felt the same to, to keep that, to keep that as a confident belief. But, um, I think I grew up, you know, and, and, but the strange thing is that it took me a while to accept I've grown up and, and I can't go back to those records and that sort of inspiration and that certainty. And then I decided to stop making music altogether. I didn't want to do it anymore. And then like it came back again, like around 
2017 and it's here for this this new record as well it's the sense of like like proceeding like a sleepwalker you know like that the, the choices are all the right choices and it doesn't matter what people think it doesn't matter if people feel that there were bad choices made i know that they're not bad choices it's like a kind of fanatical strange way of thinking that is so unlike any of the any other way i think about anything else in my life I'm very much self-doubting and thinking things through and second-guessing them with everything else. But with this, it's like it's like Hitlerian in in some way. It's so fanatical, you know. So um, it's 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 odd. It, it it went and then it came back again. And, it, and who knows? It might go again. And, and I know though that if it does go again, I should stop. And I will. You know, I'll honour that because there's nothing worse than making art that you you don't really feel is is worthwhile like what a waste of everyone's time there are enough records in the world already i understand that and i I certainly respect that but i also you know again as somebody who all i ever wanted to do for a living was right i can't imagine just stepping away from that. that it seems like it would be an intensely difficult decision not only an intensely difficult decision for me to make, but that it would be crazy making in all of those times when I'm not able to do the thing that I want to do. Yeah, I can, I can hear you on that, but I think that it might be a very different experience for you though, because for me it was all good and then it was all bad and then it was all good again. There, it wasn't like there was a kind of a mixed, mixed auguries at the bottom of the tea the tea leaves were showing mixed things when I poured them out. It was, it was very clear to me that the inspiration had gone. And I think it also, that's perhaps another thing about pop music that the first generation of really, of people who made really great records, they were all washed up really, weren't they? By the time they were in their mid thirties. I mean, did I could think of a couple of good John Lennon solo songs. Tina Turner just passed, and I was th- I was I didn't realize that I was I was young at the time, but all the coverage was about how remarkable it was that she was a pop star in her forties, <laughs> <laughs> which would just be so odd to say about like any any other profession other than maybe a professional athlete. Yeah, I still think that way. You see, because I'm very much trapped. I'm a victim of my. Um, background and upbringing but i still think i'm potentially doing something wrong by doing this at the age i'm at in my 40s i mean but then i look at someone like robert wyatt and i think well robert wyatt made interesting records all his life so why there is a model for it you know but like it's really i do think it's really curious that that the real the really great people from the 60s like arthur lee for instance or Lennon, that they just, something, again, like some fever broke and it was never the same. And maybe now and then you get a little glimpse of what they were capable of once, like like Number Nine Dream by um, John Lennon or Five String Serenade by Arthur Lee. And then it goes again and, and it's gone. And it's almost like it didn't, it didn't belong to the person. It visited them and then it went away, you know. Arthur Lee's... Interesting. I don't know a ton about him personally, but I'm, you know, was was he, 
was he a little bit, was it almost sort of like a, I don't know, like almost like a Sid Barrett sort of um, Brian Wilson situation where um, he he kind of went just, just completely off the deep end at a certain point? <laughs> I don't know very much about him on a personal level either. I only really know the work. I mean, he was in prison for an extended period, I think. He was in prison, yeah. He was for shooting a gun through someone's ceiling, as I understand it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I think with him, with Forever Changes, and then the, the the single he did with that original band straight afterwards, it's almost like there was nowhere to go after that, you know, or nowhere to go that I can imagine that, that, that anyone could go afterwards. It seems, it's quite mysterious. It seems... So- so many people love that record in this country, in Britain. You know, they're just obsessed with it. And they think it, it's like it sums up the totality of the human experience, you know, forever changes. And I, I would tend to agree. And I've read so many books trying to explain um, the, the interest. I've read books by people saying it's, it's, the, it's the New England tradition of prophecy that he's copying, you know, or it's the Surrealist or it's Dada or whatever. And you never can really explain why it's so moving and why it's so beautiful, but also so disturbing. You know, it's it's fascinating. And um, but but it didn't it didn't the inspiration didn't come back after that. And he must have been in his mid twenties, you know. And so I think the point I was making, I suppose, is that you don't get that so much with authors. Authors, you would tend to expect to to really bloom in their 40s and then begin a slow decline in their 50s and 60s i suppose you're getting at something really interesting here you know as you're describing see now i want to read i want to read all about him now but as you're describing it i think what you're getting at is him you know you not knowing why it's successful but even more importantly him not understanding why it was successful, you know, capturing, capturing lightning in a bottle like that and not understanding why something works can be a completely paralyzing experience. Yeah, I can imagine it is. I can imagine it is. The, you know, um, the, the French writer, um, well, he's actually from Uruguay, I think, but he lived in Paris, uh, Lautremont. He called himself the Le Comte de Lautremont, the Count of the Count Lautremont. He was a guy who lived in the 19th century Paris, and he was involved in the Paris Commune. And nobody really, but there's not really any historical uh, evidence of who he actually was. We know that he came from Montevideo. I can't remember what country that is. I think it's Uruguay, isn't it? Anyway, he came to Paris and he wrote this this book called Les Chants de Maldoror, which, um, like the songs of Maldoror, which is the most unbelievably strange, kind of sadistic, horrible, bizarre book that you could ever possibly imagine. I mean, it, it anticipates Dadaism and, 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 and is quite close to the Marquis de Sade. But, I mean, the famous quote from it is, nothing could be more beautiful than the meeting of... Uh, an umbrella and a sewing machine upon a dissecting table. It's that kind of, you know, it's, you can see William Burroughs took a lot from it probably. 
No, nobody knows why he wrote. Or uh, she had an Andalou, maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, definitely. This. So this is what I was going to come to. Nobody knows why he wrote what he wrote, but the Surrealists discovered this book and it became their Bible. And then they found that he'd written another book called The Poem. And it's the most like Apollonian, Apollonian classical, carefully wrought, you know, like Augustan poem about the virtues. And part of what made him so endlessly fascinating to those people and probably to everyone since is there is no way you can connect the person who wrote one with the person who wrote the other. It's inexplicable. It's incomprehensible. But he did. And, and, and no one knows why or how. And, and that's the great fascination of him as, as a figure, um, which really makes me smile because um, I love that kind of bafflement. Um, and I think that with Arthur Lee, it's the same. We can't, you can't follow him somehow, but you still have the work and you still have to have a, a reaction to the work. Yeah, just the not knowing is is one of the most interesting things and you kind of do get the impression that this guy didn't know either and so if he didn't know and we don't know where does it come from where does it come from to start with and i don't know i don't know the answer i mentioned sid barrett and brian wilson and in in one breath you know people who like obviously suffered a great deal to a certain extent because of their art or you know, you mentioned Robert Wyatt, and I, I'm forgetting the other surrealist writer that you mentioned earlier. But you know, he uh, he was he was bedridden, and these are two cases where I don't want to say that they had to suffer to make great art, but it sounds like in both cases they make great art to a certain extent because of what they had suffered. Well, they made they made the art they did because of the places they found themselves in. I'd say, like all of us, I guess, but. Um yeah, it's, it's specifically in those cases. I don't know. I, I'd be so wary of talking about like the, the Sid Barrett thing as mad genius. I think that's that idea is is well past its sell by date. I don't really know very much about Sid Barrett as a person either. I'm not. I know there's lots of people used to knock on his door and harass him in. Um, it's Cambridge he lived, wasn't it? So that's where they were from, wasn't it? Uh, but but the work is again, it's it's beautiful. Like Opal, that song Opal. I can never tell where it's going to go next, but it all works. It hangs together, and there is some kind of uncanny uncanny intelligence at work there, in the same way as you're as we're describing the other uh, musicians and authors in the conversation, I think. I, I do want to bring this around to, to the, the new record. Um, <laughs> reading through some of the press material, the way that you described it, uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me that I think speaks to all of these things that we've been talking about is this image of, I think you were in Spain and there were, there were forest fires and that, that visual had, it sounds like it's permeated its way into several songs on the album. Is that a case of, I mean, obviously if we're talking about colors and we're talking about light, then certainly viewing forest fires from afar ticks all of those boxes. 
Yeah, I think there are some images uh, that you you don't have time to defend yourself against. I don't know if this is just me, but I feel like your brain, one's brain does a lot of work in consolidating images and, and making them and comparing them. Uh, and that's how you perceive things most of the time. But occasionally one image will come and it, and it pierces you to the core. You can't, you, you are not defended against it, you know, and, and, and so it works its way in. And that was one of them, you know, it was seeing, first of all, I thought it was raining and then I saw ash coming down and, and um, it, funnily enough, it wasn't a feeling of, of horror, really. It was a feeling of novelty and curiosity and um, it's the kind of thing that you dream about for a long time afterwards because it's so out of the ordinary perhaps and um, it became a a repetition a repeated element it found its way into a lot of songs and it wasn't a deliberate thing again I didn't say I'd really love to make a record that repeats this image of a forest fire this particular image just it sort of inserted itself into the lyrics, really, you know. Um, and I thought, well, you know, why am I writing about this over and over again? And I didn't really know, but I thought I would just leave it in anyway. It felt to me like the right, the right kind of image to fit the music and to fit the overall moods of the songs. I suppose it's a bit, a bit disturbing, a little bit ominous and apocalyptic, but also in some strange way quite beautiful too. That specific example is interesting because it is an example of something that certainly from afar looks beautiful, but like also, you know, I'm, I'm from California and I'm in New York and we've had all of these really bad forest fires. The, the air quality in, in New York City has been several days of the last few months has been orders of magnitude worse than it is in like Beijing, for example. So it's it's interesting to trying to find a way to say this that doesn't sound dark, but to almost find to find beauty in something that is so completely horrible and not just in the moment, but also obviously what it kind of portends for the human race moving forward. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like it goes back to that. The Luis Buñuel, you know, the surrealist who said he would much rather, he, he was famous and old and, and be very celebrated. <laughs> People used to ask him, would you like to open a hospital? And he'd say, I'd much rather burn one down. You know, that kind of strange delight in destruction, um, but, which I don't necessarily identify with entirely, but you can kind of see that the, what he meant, the the disturbing element of it is always, there's always a disturbing part of something really beautiful, I think, you know. One of the themes that you come back to quite a bit on this record is, was your mother passing? Um, You know, it's been about 30 years. Obviously, that's something that stays with you for forever. But was that triggered by something? How did that specific thing wind its way onto so many of these songs? I don't know really. I hadn't I hadn't really spoken about it, I suppose, in all that time. And I thought it was probably time to face up to it. Which is a really terrible answer because it makes the record sound like it's a therapy session, which which it's really not. 
I think that at the time it was happening, it was May and everything seemed incredibly vivid and almost hyper real in a way that, you know, like it was almost feverish um, for me. And I think there's a part of me that wanted to, to make that beautiful and save it, transform it in some way. Um, because there's not much consolation in the picture other than that, but if this small piece of consolation could, could be salvaged from that situation of the mem- making the memories of it in some way beautiful, I don't know what triggered it. It just felt like the right time to do it, I suppose, to try it at least. What does it mean to make something like that beautiful? I think what I'm trying to say is that it was overwhelming. You know, that, and I, I'm not talking from a personal, I really like feel that, that comfortable talking about, you know, my personal things, but I'm talking about aesthetically or, no, not aesthetically. I'm talking about in terms of perception. It was overwhelming. The light was overwhelming. The day and night were overwhelming. Everything was too much. And to try and frame that and set that into music drains of its poison in a way drains its poison out and to try and transfigure that, that, that feeling and that, that those perceptions, which were just very disturbing and overwhelming and couldn't be, couldn't be bound by anything to try and bind them. And, and, and like, you know, potentially to use a pretentious, uh, uh, metaphor, but, to set them like jewels in some way and make them safe and make them. And the way that I know how to make things safe is to make them beautiful. So I don't know, it's a bit of a halting and probably slightly, it's going to seem like a slightly eccentric explanation, but it's the truest way I can put it. Obviously we're not the first people to to stumble on this idea, but, I find that when I think back to things, certainly things when I was younger, um, you know, sad things, tragic things, the things that I tend to remember are often not the tragedies themselves, you know, but it would be, I don't know, this is just a random example, but it would be being at a, a, a wake, somebody's wake, being at a grandparent's wake and remembering, you know, what the food tasted like. There are these sorts of peripheral things. And I don't know if it's compartmentalizing. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just the way that we deal with, with trauma, but for some reason, the tangential things stick with us. I mean, you know, like the great, like literature example is it's cliche to even talk about, but is, is, um, is Proust with the, with the Madeline, right. Of just having this memory triggered by this like seemingly inconsequential sense yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, Madeleine just um, unpacks such a a universe, doesn't it? Um, but the way, but I think that do we? I don't know. Do you feel that like Proust is is a a person with a normal Im- imagination, but a great power of eloquence, or do you feel that he's kind of abnormal? Because I feel like he's almost abnormal he's manic 
in in the sense of what he remembers. When you were discussing earlier this idea of the Love album, you know, containing I, I can't remember how you put it, but I, in the past I've described I, I reread Moby Dick a, a couple of years ago, and and again. This is very pretentious, but to say, and it was at the time, but I still feel this way, that there's an extent to which a work like that feels like, as you're reading, it feels like it contains all the, all the answers of the universe, you know, it contains all the, somehow contains like all the world's information in there. And I think that that's the only, the only way that you can create Knowing what I know about Melville, for example, I don't think Melville was a particularly what we would call a normal guy. He had a lot of interesting dalliances and and uh, life circumstances on the side. But these are things that, again, I think can only be created if your brain works differently from other people. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't know about Moby Dick. I mean, I, well, the thing I love about Moby Dick is that. They have chapters about the harpoons and the ropes <laughs> because I love it because it, it's like it's so boring, you know, but it's like he's saying to you, look, I saw everything that was here and I remember it all. So everything I tell you after this, you have to realize it's true because, I, you know, it's like this is the evidence that I was there and now everything afterwards you have to believe. And I think that's a lovely way of writing. You know the, the the everyday objects frame the the huge whatever the rest of it is metaphysical riddles. That's an interesting case. This is a whole side. It's an interesting case because they're they're just like very basic facts. They're very basic scientific facts that that he gets wrong in there. The thing that I understood rereading it as an adult that I didn't when I you know attempted the first few times to read it as 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 a child is it's just not. There, there's no measure by which we would consider it to be a normal book. You know, it's obviously this very influential work, but it's very, it's very, very strange. And it's something that, again, I think that in the say, if whether, whether it's whether the thing I said about Renoir is accurate or not, part of it is just a person's brain, but, but, but a big part of it is just the a way, the way people, the way people understand reality. And, and, and that's, you know, that's filtered through all sorts of all, all sorts of different things. Some some of them are sensory. You know, some of them are in some cases mental conditions. But I don't know. I, I'm I'm increasingly convinced that to make a really great work of art, your brain just has to work differently from other people. Well, you've ended on metaphysical riddles and Moby Dick, which is great. <laughs> 